My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, today we're going to be talking about a new acronym, a cousin to FOMO called FOPO, Fear of People's Opinions, and it was invented by Michael Gervais, who's the author of a new book called The First Rule of Mastery. Stop worrying about what people think of you. Now, Michael was introduced to me by my friend, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And I looked him up and I was like, wow, this guy is very cool. He's a renowned high-performance psychologist working with organizations like the Seattle Seahawks, Red Bull Stratos, Team USA. And he just understands how to get the best performance out of people. He is also the founder of Finding Mastery, a high-performance psychology consulting agency that helps individuals and innovative companies solve the most dynamic human performance challenges through mindset training. He's also the host of the Finding Mastery podcast and the co-creator of the Performance Science Institute at USC. So, I mean, he's just an all-around impressive guy. And we're talking about mindset. We're talking about brain chemistry. We're talking about FOMO-FOPO. Something for everybody here. Now, my small ask for you this week, head over to LinkedIn. Why is that? Because there's a new commercial on my page. If you go to Patrick-McGinnis, I'm working with a company called Mercado Ads, part of Mercado Libre in Latin America. You'll be learning a lot more about this in the fall and into next year. We have a whole thing going, but the commercial is out. It's very exciting. It's kind of like Mission Impossible meets James Bond, believe it or not. Go check it out. Watch it. Let me know what you think. Leave something in the comments. I'm very proud of it. It was super fun. I will talk about how we filmed it and what I learned a little later. But just go check out the commercial because it'll put a smile on your face, I promise. (laughs) All right. And now onto the interview. As you know, I start every interview with the same question. And my question to Michael was this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? There's a handful of really important decisions that I've made. One of them being whether I chase my pursuit of surfing, which was my sport of choice as, as a youngster, which I had lots of kind of wind behind me, you know, in that pursuit, and or go to college. And I chose college. That was the, the path I chose. And so I wasn't even sure why I was choosing that because I love surfing, but I, I couldn't see the future in it that I had hoped. And so I pivoted just slightly, um, moved into an academic uh, field, basically, which is the study of psychology. And thank God I made that decision. Like, I'm so happy with how it went. Of course, I don't know how it was going to go otherwise, but um, that was a form of decision. And if I can just add one more, there was a a moment where my wife and I, we were married for seven years. And she says, I love you. You're a good man. I've lost my way. I don't feel the way I want to feel in a relationship. And I, I've told you this a bunch and kind of, it just hasn't quite worked and it's time for us to end. And I said, Oh shit. 
And I was like on my front foot going after um, the, the, the understanding as deeply as I possibly could the science of psychology. And um, I was just, I was really selfish and um, pursuing mastery. And um, she said, I'm done. And then so what ended up taking place is I moved out, which is like the first, usually the first sign of divorce. And as a, as a licensed psychologist, I was like, holy shit, like, I'm not sure this is, this was not in the cards for me. And I'm super bummed on it. And we, we found a therapist that was awesome. And so we didn't speak for about a month. And then we found a therapist, we agreed to do the work. And it was one of the greatest decisions, I think, that the two of us together made, which was to give a, give a relationship that we, we dearly cared about a, a fighting chance with somebody who is a professional. That's a really uh, important story. Thank you for sharing it. And it's amazing how sometimes it's, I, I remember there's this, this, this gentleman who I spoke to when I was writing the FOMO book, who was uh, the head of Opus Dei in Canada. So he's a Catholic priest. And he said, we're talking about indecision in life. And, and I think this is going to really square up with what we talk about today, which is, you know, people worry so much about a lot of different factors, whether it's the bright, shiny object or what people think about them. And then when something like that happens, it's a clarifying moment and you have to sort of stop and take stock of where you are and all of that stuff that seems so important seems completely secondary or frivolous. And you are, 100%. You're, 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 you have the opportunity to make a choice at that moment. 100%. And I can still feel those feelings now, which has been like uh, 15 years ago, that I, I still had that awareness about like, okay, if I take this path, man, how's that going to impact the other parts of my life? And what would people think of me if I, if I couldn't figure out my own marriage? And I, I remember distinctly being a overworried even at that point about what other people would think if that course of action were to take place. And so it's actually what led to the, you, you inspired me actually, FOMO was a deep inspiration for me to, to introduce a concept that I've fallen in love with as well. Yeah. And the concept is the topic of your new book, which is coming out right now. It's called The First Rule of Mastery. And it's about a concept called FOPO, which I love it. Listen, I, I like FOMO more. I'm not going to lie, but you know, that's my baby. But FOPO <laughs> is a concept that you have, uh, you've come up, you've bequeathed unto the world. So it's like a cousin, like our two terms can go, you know, when we're long gone, our two terms can hang out to each other with each other and talk about us, but talk about FOPO. And I love in early in the book, you, you use the example of Beethoven, who I'm a big Beethoven stan. So give us that example too, because I think it's a really great way of showing the, the concept. So when you introduced the word FOMO, I was, I, when I, first time I heard it, it was super casual. It was from somebody else. And I said, oh, that's FOMO. And I said, what is that? Just like everyone else I said, oh, fear of missing out. And I go, oh, I, I know that fear. <laughs> and so it was just kind of running in the background for a long time. And when I, I wrote a article on Harvard Business Review and they called 12 months later and they said, hey, that article you wrote was the number one downloaded article. We'd love to turn this into a book. And so that's how this started. But that article was about getting whipped around by the world's pressures, not having a sense of being grounded and free and a, self of, a sense of like 
self-assurance, even in high stress and high pressure environments. And it really was about this fear of what people would think of us that is at the center of that decision-making process about how am I going to show up? And so FOMO is like not not fear of missing out, like not being part of something. And FOPO is what happens when I know I'm going to show up to something, but I've got that anxiety that is part of the um, the experience. And essentially, that's how it started. It was like uh, a little bit of wildfire. It was fire. It was accidental. And then I took the concept and said, okay, what is the neurobiology? Um, what's the psychology? What are the behavioral levers of it? And uh, spent about two years doing a deep dive on research about the first rule of mastery, I believe, is working from the inside out. Mm. And when you do that work, FOPO, which I've, I've come to understand for me in the world that I live in, is one of the greatest constrictors of human potential. The fear of what they might think of me is one of the greatest constrictors of how good and how free somebody can be in life. And so that's, that's essentially what the book is about. And Beethoven, bring in the Beethoven here, because I think that's a, a really great way to show it in the real world. So for a long time, I thought I was a bit alone in this high anxiety of what other people would think of me, whether, you know, it was, in, it was informing the way I made choices, the words I chose, the jokes I laughed at, that I didn't laugh at, laugh at, you know, it just was in part of everything. And I thought I was alone in it. And then as I became uh, more entrenched in the world of high-performance psychology and elite athletes, they would talk about something akin to that as well. The pressure that comes from letting people down, the pressure that comes from being scrutinized, you know, millions of people at, uh, at a time. And so I started to tune to it a little bit more. And then I came across, um, I'm fascinated by the greats. You know, the path of mastery is what I've basically dedicated my life towards understanding those best practices of what those intrepid explorers of human potential do. And so as I'm studying Beethoven, one of the greats, a bit of a punk rock <laughs> um, approach to classical music, and he had FOPO, and I couldn't believe it. And when I, when I tripped across it, I, I just it just freed me in so many ways because I was like, yes, like this is ubiquitous. Like that so many people have it. And the way he experienced it is one of the greatest composer one of the greatest pianists of all time. And he would walk around as if he was aloof, as if he was better than other people, not because he believed that. Well, at some level he did. His narcissism was pretty high. But primarily in this, I'm talking about in his 20s, 30s, primarily because he couldn't hear. He had lost his hearing. He was beginning to lose his hearing. And he was so ashamed of how somebody of his stature in the, in the world of politics and the world of power, and certainly in the world of music, he had great influence during his time, that, that he was terrified of what people would think of him. How could somebody of my stature be so deficit in the thing that is required to produce great music, which is his hearing? And so he went into a dark cave, suicidal depression, overwhelmed by this malady that he had, and this fear of what people and how they were going to judge him if they knew that he was, of all people, deaf. So he, he went away for about a year. And during that time, it was a very dark time for him. Um, I think most of us would recognize Beethoven from 
um, one of his, his, his great com- compositions, which is dun, 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 dun. And fifth symphony, as it, right. Fifth, yes, Third symphony movement. number five. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, there you go. You really did. Do, I you love know Beethoven. Beethoven. Yeah, I do. And so that is potentially, um, because we're not quite sure, we haven't been able to interview him and some of the, the transcripts of his communications um, are suspect, but that was maybe him banging on his, his um, mm-hmm. piano like, why can't I hear this? Why can't I hear myself? And it was that bang, 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 bang. And then he was, he like, it was a light bulb insight moment. Like, wait, I heard that. And I felt wow. that and kind of turned it into one of the most recognized riffs of all time. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. By the way, I want to correct myself. That's the first movement. I prefer the third movement, but uh, mm-hmm. that is the first movement. It, it's interesting because I, I recently, just to your point, like I went to see uh, Rachmaninoff's Piero Concerto Number no. Three with the New York Philharmonic, and uh, there was a note in the in the program that said that Rachmaninoff had some early success and then became very fearful that he would not live up to his expectation and what the people would judge him. And so he stopped writing. He had terrible writer's block that he was, he cured it by going to a hypnotherapist who he then dedicated the piece to. So it's just like it, what I think, you know, what it says to us here, a couple of things. Number one, it says some of the greatest people who have bequeathed, you know, their skill and given us some of the most beautiful, amazing things, whether it's in sports or business or whatever, the arts, they suffer from this. And second of all, and you kind of reference this, is this is coming from a place of feeling of lack, which is so interesting that, but it happens all the time. You always hear about these people who are at the top of the world externally, but internally are suffering. And so 
this is something that is pervasive for people at all levels of the, you know, the quote unquote, you know, sort of ladder of success. I love that you are kind of wrestling it down to where we meet it, which is wherever we go, we have our mind. Mm. And our mind essentially is this filter that we make sense of ourselves and the world around us. And our brain, that tissue that sits in our skull, it's got a bit of a different um, dictum. The dictum of the brain, not the mind here, but the dictum of the brain is for safety, to figure out how to scan the world for all the dangerous things and adjust accordingly. And that's where we believe emotions come on board is because they help us sense things that are dangerous and emote, meaning to move. And so emotions help us respond to threats and respond to connections. So belonging is safety. So our brains are wired to keep us safe. and, And part of that is to be in the middle of the pack. And we are incredibly sensitive to other people's judgment and critique. And because if they're going to reject us, Allah kick us out of the tribe, survival was certainly at risk. And so being part of and belonging is part of our DNA for survival. It is incredibly powerful as a mechanism. And it's up to us to program our psychology, to work with our psychology, to be able to tamp down, to to take care of this brain's dictum that has been around for millions of years. We no longer have the same tribal structure that we had hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we have an ancient brain trying to solve modern problems. And the modern problem of getting kicked out of the tribe for survival is not one of them. But we're so tuned to criticism and judgment because it is the first entry point into potential rejection that what we end up doing is we scan for body language and micro expressions and words and silence and inactions and trying to figure out if we're okay. And so if we come from a position of lack, I'm not sure if I'm okay, and our brain is designed to keep us safe, what we end up doing is making sure we're okay. So we worry, are they going to accept me? And FOPO is really this exhaustive attempt to try to interpret but the, the main bulk of FOPO happens in as an anticipatory mechanism. What will they think of me later? What will their opinions of me be you know, at that party or at that event or at whatever? So it's this exhaustive approach to try to figure out how to be your present as your very best rather than to be your very best. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. You talk about the ancient brain. I mean, these responses are codified into us because they were protective. Like if you didn't have them, you could get separated in group and you're going to get eaten by a wildebeest or whatever, you know, was around back then. But now they're about emotional safety and, and, and that, you know, a lot of times doesn't serve us. Talk about the triggers here because you get into that in the book. And I think what I would love for people who are listening to be able to do is to start to monitor self and say, Oh, like, I, I'm getting my FOPO reaction right now because this or that happened. So I'd love to kind of unpack what some of those triggers look like. Yeah, so we triggers and on-ramps of FOPO, there's so many of them. And mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the on-ramps is um, when you don't have a good sense of who you are. So you outsource your sense of identity and your sense of esteem to other people. 
And so that that is kind of ground zero of this whole thing is when you're not sure about what your first principles are, what you stand for, what the guiding principles or values for your thoughts, words, and actions. If you don't know what those are, then we outsource them to other people. And when they say a joke that they think is funny for whatever reason, and it's offensive to us or one of our loved ones, and we conform and we laugh, that is like evidence of FOPO. When we obsess about, you know, what am I going to wear or what is it that I'm going to, um, uh, how am I going to show up to a social event or a work event? And we're overthinking that, that's an on-ramp to FOPO. Another on-ramp is when we feel that that uh, excitement that comes from wanting to show right and wanting to have a moment to be our very best because it's there's some sort something that is on the line and we don't not interpret that sense of butterflies between nervousness and readiness and so if we think it's nervousness but it's actually you know from a biomechanical standpoint or I'm sorry a bioelectrical standpoint it it's just readiness when we interpret that as like okay, I'm nervous. It must be because I'm not sure what they're going to think of me. That sucks us right into the vortex as well. So those are three of the big ones. And I think that paying attention to all those is certainly there's relief on the other side of it. When you know your core values, when you know your first principles, you can act accordingly. That is one of the most powerful places for humans to be. It's what I've seen from the best in the world across the last 25 years as a sports psychologist is they are very clear about what matters most to them. And they fight for it, as opposed to fighting for approval. It's interesting, you talk about sports psychology and obviously mental health concerns in sports these days. It's become a much more talked about dynamic. You know, it, there's people are just ready to have that conversation. And there is so much external pressure on athletes. Like if you think about, you know, tennis players, they're in an arena, it's sort of like, you know, it looks like a Roman arena with millions of people, well, not millions, watching, of course, but then in the arena are tens of thousands, and they're screaming and yelling, and it, it, there's so much happening there. And I imagine that part of that, the stress that people are feeling is seeking approval or caring what other people think, and that, of course, can can directly affect performance. That's why people choke, for example. As we think about that, like, how do we stop... You know, just just to start getting into as folks think about solutions like, OK, I'm, I'm about to go on stage to perform in front of a bunch of people. I'm about to, you know, play in the game I'm, or I'm about to give a presentation in front of a bunch of people and I'm feeling the feelings and the triggers are happening. And I may recognize that. And I, you know, maybe I've gotten to that point, but I'm still having a, a physiological response you know, there's epinephrine or whatever flying around my body. Like, what can I do to just slow things down just to even begin the process of trying to not freak out? At that point, it is a little too late. So it's okay. good that you're aware, uh -oh. but if you don't oh, know, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So I'll give you a couple band-aids that we can all use. However, um, in sport, let's use just sport for uh, an example here because it's so objective. It's so mm -hmm. clear how it works is that. You go to practice and you practice physical, technical, and mental skills. And in practice, you practice all three of those skills. Sometimes they're, they're all together and sometimes they're broken apart. And I'll put a pin right now in mental skills for a moment. But just to drive the point home is that they practice their physical and technical skills. And then game day, they, there's not anything new 
that they're expected to deploy. It's like, do what you've practiced. You don't make things up game day. Mm-hmm. You know, many people might not know that, but game day, there are moments where there's deep creativity that's called for, for but for the most part, you people fall to their level of training. They don't rise to the occasion wow. because they fall to the level of training and the training is what holds it all together to be able to manage the pressure of that moment. Okay. So what you just described as you're walking on stage and you're giving a presentation and you feel your heart rate pounding as they're about to introduce you or you know, 45 seconds before you're about to go on, you can feel that, that stomach uh, activation, your heart rate's pounding, your breathing is kicked up, you feel that temperature, you're, you got a light sweat across your forehead or maybe there's some jitters in your hands. All of that is readiness to go. It's just a bit too much. And so that is the mental skill to be able to know how to work with that needs to have some sort of strength to that mental skill. So it's breathing and it's self-talk. So the three kind of foundational skills in performance psychology are awareness. Increasing your awareness puts you way upstream. So you're not trying to panic before you're about to go over the falls, right? So you go way upstream. So you recognize the thoughts and the interpretations that you're having that switch you on, that get you ready for something. So if you if you know how to work with your own thoughts, you slide in to that presentation state, you slide into that ideal state as they're calling your name. But so here's the shorthand, right? If you're feeling all that stuff happening, uh, best practice here is deep inhale, take an extra little sip at the top, with a long exhale. If you did those three times, you'd create some combustion, some physiological co- combustion, and then a long exhale sends a single t- signal to your brain that we're safe. So I'll model it for you really quickly. So it's a brief, big inhale and an extra sip, and then a long, quick exhale. Okay, so that's some interesting research that's taking place. The other research, this has been around since like the mid 80s, is that you would take a deep inhale in, second little um, inhale, so like you're topping it off, and then you would squeeze all of your muscles at about 70 to 80%. So you would squeeze your glutes, your hamstring, your fish, your back, your chest, you'd squeeze everything at about 70, 80%, and then on the exhale, you'd let go of all your muscle tension, and then you'd let go of um, a long exhale, which is pairing a signal to your brain that you're safe. So you get this nice little release and dump. Now, those are like the, the, the emergency parachute if you're skydiving. You don't want to have to use them. They can work. Usually, most of the time, they work really well. But if they're not going to work and they're not practiced, you kind of don't know. And so the best order of business is to go way upstream and do exactly what elite athletes do. And they've been doing this for a long time. And now they're talking about it. They train. They want to be great. So they fundamentally organize their life to work at their edge of their capacity. So they, they, they train themselves technically, physically, and mentally in high-stress environments. And they learn those skills in quiet, soft, non-stressful environments. And then they move them a little bit faster, a little bit faster, a little bit faster. So they, then they move up to rubber bullets, so to speak. And then game day is live bullets. But they start with like awareness training via meditation, via um, film study, so they can have feedback based on some other expert's interpretation of how they're doing. 
So that's a relationship piece when somebody's pointing out blind spots or pointing out things that are not good enough and pointing out things that are really good. So there's, again, mindfulness or meditation, conversations with people that know a lot, people of wisdom or people of high performance. And the third is journaling. So those are the three mechanisms to increase awareness. Without awareness training, you're not in the game. Without awareness training, you're, you're going to struggle with FOPO. You're going to struggle maybe with FOMO as well. You know, that's not where my research is, but without awareness, you're just really not in the game of high performance. FOMO. FOMO. The breathing exercise you just said, I will be deploying next week and I will report back to you. I, I do some of that stuff and I've, I've, I've had some experience with that. And, and I, I agree with you because over the years in my own training for some of the things that I've done, I've, I've tried a lot of these things and I remember the first time I ever did anything film for television was I was at NBC studios. It wasn't live. It was, um, it was taped, but when they turned the camera on, I was sh I lost control of my body. I couldn't breathe. It was like I'd been punched in the stomach and I'd only had that happen once before in my life when I was a kid performing in, um, I was performing in the orchestra and I conducted it. And I remember just, I couldn't breathe. There was so much going on in my body. I didn't have control. I was shaking like a leaf. And I've had that a few times as an adult. And it is amazing because you totally lose control of yourself. And it is important to build that sort of, that set of, you know, tools and practices behind it because it's, I've not had a panic attack, thankfully, at this point in my life, but I imagine that is pretty close to it. You just, you feel like you're having an out-of-body experience and, you know, like everybody can see that your hands are shaking and it is, it's hard to perform. You sort of muddle through, but it's definitely not an enjoyable experience. So doing the work in advance, I mean, I think that's true. I was looking for like a really easy fix, but it's not, you know, there are tools you can deploy in the moment, but if you prepare, as Michael has just suggested, you can be ready for when that moment comes for you. And what most people do is that their preparation is the technical aspect. It's like mm -hmm. knowing the words that you want right. to say and making sure that the deck is in place and rehearsing part of a script, if you will, or knowing your points that you want to get to. That's all important. That's the technical part of performing. In, in If you're on stage, the physical part is just making sure that you know, you're body, your carriage can carry you well and that you're not full of pain. For athletes, it's very different. Like they're fine tuning their physical. But if you've got your technical points and you're clear about what you want to say and you've got your deck laid out and it's all kind of good in a safe environment, and then you hit that threshold of in a high heat, in a emotionally charged way, choking is just choking off access to thinking clearly and critically. That's why we train our mind well in advance. So the breathing training I, I shared with you is like the, the parachute, you know, the escape parachute or the emergency parachute, but breathing training starting now for the rest of your life does allow you to better slide into those moments because you have, you're skilled at tools like breathing to be able to regulate yourself. And so when that autonomic nervous system kicks in, I'm sorry, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight, flight, freeze mechanism mm -hmm. turns on. It turns on because you've interpreted something to be important. Okay, so you are actually in control of this. There are some biological responses that all of a sudden it takes over. But for the most part, you think something's important and it's just doing its job to say, 
we got to get ready to, to activate. So when that comes on, and there's this whole cascade to your point earlier of adrenaline and epinephrine and cortisol, and there's all these chemicals that are going on, a couple breaths isn't going to do it. At best at that moment, a couple breaths will just take some of the edge off, mm -hmm. but it takes about 30 to 45 minutes to clear your body of adrenaline and cortisol. By that time, you're already off stage. So you, a little bit of breathing right before can take some of the edge off. But if your breathing training has set you up and your awareness training, maybe it's mindfulness or meditation, and you're really aware of the thoughts that key you up or screw mm -hmm. you up or get you tight, and you're working with those thoughts upstream, that's what mastery of self is. That's how these athletes go on, many of them go onto the field and they're, they've got that bright eyed way about them because they know how to work with their thoughts. They've, they've trained their mind to be aware of the best type of thinking and the thinking that gets in their way. They've trained their breathing so that when they do take a couple deep breaths, they become more relaxed and calm. Those are just two of them of the, the I'd say the big skills. All right, everybody. So much good in here. Uh, I think you're going to want to check out the book. It's the first rule of mastery. Now, if you want to find out more about Michael's work, go check out his website. It's findingmastery.com. I have spent some time there. It's actually a very cool website. So cheers to you. If you want to learn more about him on Instagram, you can find him at finding mastery or at Michael Gervais. He's on Facebook at finding mastery, Twitter at Michael Gervais and on LinkedIn, Dr. Michael Gervais. He's everywhere. My <laughs> Dr. Michael Gervais. Thank you so much for being here. Patrick, I appreciate what you've done for the world, and I appreciate you hosting this conversation. So thank you so much. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music FOMO. is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.